Well, good morning. Thanks again for joining us. You can have a seat. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a, it's a joy to be with you worshiping this morning. Before we get into our teaching time, I just want to do an announcement, somewhat of a, a big announcement. We are going to do a ministry plan update. Uh, so we operate here, our rhythms as a church family at Redemption City is to do a, a ministry year that kind of follows the school year. So kind of ev- every spring, we're kind of reevaluating what do we want to do in the fall uh, of next year, kind of through May uh, of 2023. And uh, we, we, Pastor Mike and the elders and I have had a lot of time chewing on that, praying about that. Uh, and there's a, a few questions that have kind of shaped the thought process as we think about what we want to do in our next ministry year. Uh, the first question is who has God put into our church family? We believe that church is the people, right? It's not the building. It's not any particular program that we do. It is the people. And the answer that we came up to that question was, one, we have a lot of new people, a lot of people that have been here like two years or less in our church family. And we have a ridiculous number of kids. Uh, We've had several visitors be like, wow, I know you're a young church, but there are so many kids in the basement. Uh, And so the kind of two follow-up questions are just, how do we respond faithfully to the people God has put in our church? The first one is, how can we create a space uh, for people to get, new people to get connected? Uh, What's a a good way? We've been having eat-ups and stuff like that, but we are a family here. That's our kind of main identity and value, and so we want to find ways to do that. And then also, how can we be faithful to the work of discipling or, uh, depending on your theological stance, evangelizing all the precious uh, depraved sinners that are running around our church? I know my kids need some, need some Jesus. Um, we, we were thinking like, hey, we want to grow in evangelism as a church, and we have this captive audience of little people that have to go wherever we take them uh, to, to share the gospel and fill their little precious minds with truth. So in light of those questions, our kind of main initiative for this upcoming year is a Wednesday church family night, uh, which will be a weekly gathering that will include a meal, uh, so some of that hospitality time, and then teaching time for people zero to 100. If you're over 100, we're going to have to find a different church. We don't have anything for you. Um, but it'd be really cool if we actually got to that point and we could have like a centigenarian, is that the word? A cent- cent- I, can't, I can't pull it out. Uh, so a couple of details about our Wednesday family night. Uh, it'll be the, the function, the what of it is to be a space for hospitality. So if someone comes and visits, we're like, hey, come back on Wednesday. We're going to have food. We'd love to get to know you more. And then also teaching and training for all ages. There's two sides of that. One, we want to actually have a space for you to receive teaching and our kids to receive teaching. Uh, but also there's a, a lot of training that happens uh, when when you step up to the teaching role. Like, I think one of the main reasons why God called me to be a pastor is because he knew that I couldn't just hear a sermon. I needed to, like, study for 10 hours a week to get it deeper into me because I have a lot of issues. (laughs) And so there's there's this gift when you're teaching, when you're responsible for communicating it. So we think it'll have kind of two sides of that. I think it'll be great to learn and be taught, uh, but also as you might step out of your comfort zone and teach some kids or some other age groups, I think there's a lot of good formation that happens in in our souls. And also right now, if you are between the ages of eight and 12-ish, uh, we don't have anything for you except for the Sunday gathering. And we wanted to correct that and kind of build into uh, our youth and build, kind of build a youth group as we age as a church. Uh, next slide is uh, how uh, each week, I kind of said that, we'll have a meal and classes for people zero to 100. And the rhythms uh, that we're going to do with this ministry plan will be kind of two semesters. One is nine-week semester, September to November in the fall, and then a 12-week semester, January to March. Uh, the two key values that we're trying to hold uh, on the map as we do this is whole church participation uh, in our beta testing and uh, 
we, some people were like, well, what if I don't have kids? Can I come to the family night? Uh, the answer is yes. When we say family night, we mean it's for the church family, all of the people, married people, single people, people with kids, people without kids, people divorced, people, you know, all over, all, all kinds of people. This is our, it takes a village night as a church family, is that we believe that parents are, are the primary people responsible for their, their kids' uh, spiritual growth, but that we need help. We need to support each other. And you, if you don't have kids, there's a unique role for you to bless, uh, bless you young people in our church. Some things can't be said from a parent, and you hold a lot more swag than a dorky parent. Uh, the, uh, so if you don't have kids, this is still for you. There's still uh, good, good participation for you. The next key value is many hands make for light work. If you're maybe lower on the energy you know, spectrum of personalities or whatever, you'd be like, oh my goodness, a weekly what? Um, we have a lot of people in our church. We've experienced a lot of growth. And so the idea is to have this be well-organized, well-run, so there's specific roles that you can say yes to and do, do that role and no other roles. And then there'll be a break and, and all that stuff. But we need kind of all hands on deck uh, to, to play a role, and we'll, we'll uh, roll that out. We'll roll out the roles later um, for how you can jump in uh, and serve. But those are kind of the two values. We hope this is a really edifying thing for our church. We're excited to see what God does through it. So let me pray. Oh, last thing before I pray. Uh, if you want, if you're a, a, a reading, a visual learner, I have uh, kind of two sheets on the desk by my office. If you want to swing by, pick those up. It's got the, the schedule and some other uh, kind of big picture vision information for you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, just this gift of a season as a church where we see uh, new people joining our fellowship, where we see uh, resources available for the, the mission uh, that you have for us. And, uh, and also, Father, we know uh, your word says that children are a blessing from the Lord, and we want to uh, steward that blessing well. And uh, our, our desire is that the work we do here would, would echo through generations, that there be decades and decades of fruit as we um, all gather around scripture and shape uh, the little hearts and minds uh, around the truth of your word and as we are shaped in teaching uh, teaching your word to to little people father would you um, just equip the the church for this work would you uh, put restlessness on our hearts that we want to jump in and participate to make this work. I pray that it'd be a beautiful time seeing the body use their various gifts uh, and um, strengths to to make something beautiful happen. Thank you that we had the summer season that's a little more restful as we kind of prepare and plan uh, to, to come out of the gate um, in the fall uh, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll invite you up for the reading of God's word. So, Song of Songs, we are finishing up the series uh, this morning. What a treat to be digging into this Old Testament love poetry. I hope you have been enjoying it as uh, much as I have. And today, we come to the climax of this great uh, book here. And uh, I want to say a few things, I guess, before that, as we are uh, wrapping up. I hope this series has just given you a God-sized vision for marriage and romance and sex, and that you see that these are kind of things that we can have conversations about in a church, maybe with a little blushing, but, but generally we can talk about these kind of conversations. So hope you've come away from this series so far with a big vision for what God is doing in these incredibly 
uh, powerful things. I hope you've gotten some wisdom for navigating the complexities of romantic love. For some of you that are more clueless like me, like I need wisdom as we're navigating all the complexities of the romantic uh, life. And I hope you understand as we walk away from this, uh, man, that there is so much hope, so much grace, so much help for all the ways we fall short of the vision that we have here in the song, right? We have this beautiful, dazzling picture of romance and all of its glory, and yet there's so much grace in the Bible for, for, for us as we stumble and as we struggle towards that beautiful vision together. And so we want to help with that, and we want to, if you need mentoring, like you say, man, my marriage like isn't quite singing the song right now. <laughs> I need some help getting it back in tune. Like We would love to get you connected with a marriage mentor. Um, if you'd like to talk to one of the pastors, love to do that. If you need to get set up with some practical, with some professional counseling, all those things would be wonderful, great. We really want uh, to help you get connected. We really want to help you rekindle the romance if it's not there. Uh, the other thing we want to do is we want to answer any questions you might have. And so we did a little text-in thing. We realized this is, a, this is a delicate subject. We haven't answered all the questions. We haven't delved into all the challenging complexities of this topic by a long shot. And so we just wanted to set up a number you can text to uh, it's like a Google Voice number for the church here. You can just text it in. And we're going to sit down, the pastors, probably get some ladies on the call as well, and we're going to do a podcast uh, in the next week or two and answer any questions you guys have. So if you want to bust out your phones, uh, put that f- number in there. As you're thinking throughout the sermon, a question comes to your mind. As you're thinking a little, little bit later, you can text in any questions to that number, and we'll be able to kind of field those, answer those, and delve in. You know, nothing's off limits. We'd love to be able to hear from you and talk with you. That number is also on the Slack channel, too. If you miss it in this moment, too, you can check it out. Um, We would love to interact more, dialogue, discuss, and obviously, um, yeah, we'd just love to be able to talk more about this subject if you have any questions. But um, that's all we've got uh, for the introduction. I need to dive right in because I've got mountains of wonderful content, so many riches in this final section of... Uh, the uh, book here. Um, We've spent the last week immersed in Hebrew love poetry, losing ourselves, as it were, in the beauty and the poetry, exploring all the moods of love. And finally, here in chapter 8, we come to the definitive statement of the power of love. Our heroine speaks these timeless lines, which have been endlessly explored by our best poets, songwriters, singers, novelists, artists over the last 3,000 years, and we get to spend just a few minutes here. I wish we had a few hours uh, unpacking some of the riches of this material. And this definitive statement on the power of love helps bring clarity to the refrain of the song to not awaken love prematurely, a theme that has come up in 273584. This final description of the power of love helps us understand why this thing called love needs special protection, why it should not be awakened prematurely. The the big idea for this morning is that romantic love is one of the most powerful forces in the universe and therefore must be treated accordingly. Romantic love is one of the most powerful forces in the universe and therefore must be treated accordingly. So we're going to look at three principles for respecting the power of love here in the closing chapter of the song. 
we're going to see three things. That true love desires permanency in verses 5 through 7. We're going to see that true love requires protection in verses 8 through 12. We're going to see that true love never ends in verses 13 through 14. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would fully respect the awesome power of love. And so let's pray as we dive in this morning that God would grant us new insights into the wonders of love that we're exploring here this morning. And so, Father, we know that at its height, romantic love can feel like heaven. And we know that at its depths, (laughs) it can also feel like hell. Would you help us to steward well this most powerful of forces in our relationships, God? And would you get all the glory in marriages that display all the glories of love, marriages where love burns uh, brightly. So would you come this morning by the power of your spirit? Uh, would you speak to your people through your inspired word? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So dig in, uh, grab your Bibles here. We're going to be in verses 5 uh, through 7. And we need to set things up here in chapter 8 first with the context here in chapter 8, verse 5. Uh, Follow right along again. You're going to need your Bible. We're going to be delving deep into the text, into this wonderful Hebrew love poetry. So follow right along. We're going to be starting out in verse 5 of chapter 8, which gets us started our entryway into the text for this morning. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. These opening verses for our text really set the context. We see this young couple enjoying all the intimacies of marriage, and here they are arm in arm coming up out of the countryside, out of the wilderness, where they've been able to get away and get alone together. And all the glories of intimacy and marriage evoke this classic response from our heroine in verse 6 as she's enjoying all the pleasures of romantic love they call forth this desire for permanency it's not enough that they just enjoy uh, a rendezvous a frolic off into the countryside this love has got to be permanent listen to what she says here in verse 6 these classic lines set me as a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm for love is strong as death jealousy fierce as the grave Uh, what's the woman asking for here what is this language of seal this may not be familiar to us uh, today, this language is sealed, but our heroine, she's longing for permanency and security in their relationship. Uh, commentator Lloyd Carr explains this image this way. He says, the engraved stone or metal seal was used to mark possession or ownership. Since they were in part the signature of the owner, possession of another seal was tantamount to having free access to all his or her possessions. The context here suggests that the girl wants to imprint her claim on her lover deeply and openly on him. Now this is very interesting, right? In the culture of the ancient Near East, right, where wives were often treated as property, right, here is, in the worst of cases, 
Here is a woman asserting her claim of ownership on her man. She wants to possess him permanently. She is asserting her claim on her lover both privately. She wants to set him as a seal, him to set her as a seal upon his heart, to hold her in his heart always and publicly as a seal on his arm that would represent their lasting commitment, their their fidelity, their relationship together. She wants permanent possession of him and she wants the whole world to know about it, right? This beautiful love that has blossomed, right? She wants it to go public and she wants it to be a permanent thing, something that would forever endure in their hearts. And, and that's the natural desire of love, isn't it? You know, even in love that falls short of that, in those moments of euphoria and those moments of romance, right? You always hear lovers saying things like, I will love you forever. You know, this love is going to go on forever. Like all the chick flicks, all the romance novels, it's like, you know, this love is eternal. It will go on forever. You're my soulmate. And like, we just hear, it's just the cry of our hearts Right, for love to endure forever, for it to have permanency, for it to endure through all the ups and downs and trials of life. And that's what we see from our lover here. She wants this love to go on forever, this, this seal to be emblazoned on the heart of her, her lover, this seal to be permanent upon her arms. And then in some of the finest lines of poetry ever penned, she offers her passionate reasons for why their love should be permanent. So she wants this love to endure, and then she states why. We already read uh, the second half of verse 6. For love is strong as death, and jealousy is fierce as the grave. Uh, First off, she says that true love is strong as death, right? It is fierce as the grave. Here, the poet compares love to the power of death and Sheol, the underworld, As no one can escape the power of death or evade the grave, so no one can escape from the power of true love. And jealousy in this context is used positively for its zeal, its passion, its ardor, which brooks no rivals. Now, uh, Benjamin Franklin quipped that nothing is certain in life but death and taxes. Uh, But our heroine, in a slightly more romantic frame, would like to add something else to that reality, something as powerful as death, something as powerful and final as the grave, that true love always comes through. Inevitably, it overcomes all obstacles. Now, we struggle to find real-life examples of this kind of love in our world today, right? We don't see this kind of enduring, powerful love uh, around us, and we might be tempted, I know, for myself to think of some of the great romances. I uh, think of Romeo and Juliet and this incredible love story of these two tragic star-crossed lovers who would rather die than go on living without each other. And we think, yeah, there it is, love, more powerful than death, stronger than the grave. But I think what our author has in mind is a different kind of love. I think our author is thinking about uh, the kind of love that has tenacity to overcome all obstacles, to stay true through the rigors of life, down through the decades, for a love that weathers all the storms of life and, and grows old together, and that love continues to grow and develop and be refined together, not just in the, in the major setbacks of life, but in the mundane. I, I love more powerful Right, then death is something that can be sustained in the midst of the ups and downs, the highs and lows of life. And that is what our author is celebrating, a love more powerful than death, the one certain reality that each one of us will have to face. True love 
has that same force and that same power here for us in the song. Second, true love is an unquenchable fire. Uh, We go on to read in verses uh, 6 through 7, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it out. Notice how many times fire is used in our text. It's a superlative for the greatest fire. As we read through it, we see that it is, its flashes are flashes of fire. In the text, fire is used three times uh, to try and talk about the greatest fire you can imagine. Right? When we're talking about fire here in the song, we're, of course, talking about romantic love. Uh, Trevor Longman says the fire is, of course, the erotic, sensual love that the poet has expressed throughout the song. Right? Our heroine tells us that neither many waters nor rivers can extinguish this fire. Right? I mean, imagine the language here. Right? This fire is so great. The blaze so powerful that rivers being poured upon it could never put it out. Many waters, the great floods, could never wipe it out. This is an incredible blaze, a great bonfire expressing the passions of love. It burns red hot. Nothing can put it out. (laughs) Nothing uh, can calm the heat here. And I was looking for ways to capture this love. Try to do justice. How do you give tribute to this classic metaphor for love, the passions uh, of love? And I found inspiration from a rather unexpected source here. Um, None other than the master of martial arts himself, Bruce Lee. It's some, it's some wonderfully helpful words on this subject of love. Who would have thought? Romance advice from Bruce Lee this morning. Are you ready for this here? This is what he said. Love is like a friendship caught on fire. In the beginning, a flame, very pretty, often hot and fierce, but still only flickering. As love grows older, our hearts mature, and our love becomes as coals, deep burning and unquenchable. It's like not bad for the master of martial arts here, right? I mean... Friendship on fire is, I mean, I, if, I had a, if I had a redo on the title for our series, I think I would call it Friendship on Fire now. Because that's what the song is all about, this beautiful, deep friendship that's just lit on fire with all the passion of romantic love. It's the biblical vision, right? It's not just about the physical, but it's about the relational and the social and the emotional and all of those things coming together into this great bonfire of Love. What a beautiful, powerful description of what our romances should look like. Friendships on fire. Uh, The song goes out of its way, of course, to say that love is the greatest flame, but there's some debate over whether God himself is mentioned in this text. Um, uh, The last syllable in the last word for fire is a shorthand version of the divine name, but it could also just be a superlative uh, talking about an almighty flame or a divine flame. So if you look at some of the translations, if you have the ESV in front of you, you see that it's flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord, right? Because they're looking at that last little syllable, that last yah and saying, I think that's like the divine name being used there. And then other translations, you've got the NASV or the CSB, you see it burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Uh, Love's flames are fiery flames, the fiercest of all. And so... Uh, well, commentators are kind of split on what to do with this 
prefix. For Christians or Jewish readers, for that matter, it doesn't make much of a difference because whether God is explicitly mentioned here or not, we know, right, that God created love. Love was his idea, and God himself is love. And so whether we see God directly in this text, which it doesn't seem to be the case, we know that the very passion, the fire, the flame of love ultimately points us to the great love that God has for his people. Finally, in less poetic lesson, in less poetic language, we learn that true love can't be bought or sold. And we see that in verse uh, in verse seven, in that last and final section. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. True love scoffs at the offer of money for love, right? Love is priceless. It's something you can't pay for. It's something you can't buy. It's something you can't purchase. And of course, the song is celebrating a love uh, like that, a love that doesn't have a price tag put on it. This is one of the greatest tributes to the power of love ever written. It challenges, it provokes us, it rebukes our half-hearted loves Love without strength or ferocity, love without fire, love that is easily quenched, love that is bought and sold, may it not be so among us, right? May our fellowship, may the love burn bright here. We live in a culture today, of course, where love's been severed from commitment, from fidelity, from security, from permanency, right? The very thing that our heroine is longing for in our text. We live in a culture filled with parodies of true love, but love being the powerful thing that it is when ripped out of the framework of permanency can only wreak havoc and mayhem. Uh, Mark mentioned uh, Steinbeck's uh, East of Eden a few weeks ago as one of the illustrations of romance this side of the garden, right? Romance gone wrong in all the worst sort of ways. And I think the only other story that could equal or perhaps surpass its tragedy is that of uh, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, one of the great tragedies of all time. In Tolstoy's classic, uh, Anna marries a statesman 20 years her senior, but then to the scandal of St. Petersburg High Society, she runs off with a dashing young cavalry officer. And they have this incredibly passionate fling, and it's the scandal of all society. And yet the story goes on in about 800 pages of dense Russian literature to unpack how this relationship, which starts as burning so hot with so much fire, so much intensity, so much passion, as only Russian literature can evoke, you know, and just watching it begin to just fall apart. The, the love and the passion just can't sustain itself. It begins to just uh, tragically, you know, you know, we watch this thing. It's, the whole book is kind of like a train wreck. Trains are a major theme throughout the book. And, and so as the relationship begins to disintegrate, we watch the two lovers beginning to almost eat each other alive. And the, the tragedy at the end of the book is just fitting again like it just utterly wrecks and destroys the protagonist, Anna, and she ends up taking her own life um, in, the, in the course. And I won't ruin the ending of the book, which is pretty ironic in and of itself, um, but you have here just the power of love run amok. I mean, both Steinbeck and Tolstoy, I mean, they're, they're prophets for our time, right? These are cautionary tales um, that confirm the wisdom of the song, not to awaken 
love before its time. Because love taken outside of its context and outside of the beautiful context in which the song sets it, right, leads to all kinds of crazy things. I sometimes wonder if I should assign East of Eden or Anna Karen in my premarital counseling or something. Because I really scare the living daylights out of anybody thinking about divorce or thinking about having an affair. Um, but tragic material to look at. And the very contrast to what we see here in the song of a love so intense, so powerful, that it's got to go on forever. It's got to be permanent. It's got to be uh, protection that we have there. So we've seen that true love demands permanency, uh, but it also requires protection. From the soaring heights of verses 6 through 8 to what the ESV titles some final advice, uh, we enter some of the last few nuggets of wisdom here in the book. And and it's admittedly a little bit of a letdown because we're talking about love stronger than death and it's incredible power. How many waters can I put out love? And some of this material feels a little anticlimactic, but I was tempted to skip it, but I'm like, there's some really practical nuggets here for each of us. So I'm going to go through this in quicker fashion. Um, Verses 8 through 10. Uh, Some of the final advice here. We have a little sister. And she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build her a battlement of silver. If she is a door, she will, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Here in verse 8 through 10, we learn about a little sister. Right? We've come full circle in the songs. We started with the young woman back in chapter 1. who's come of age to Mary, and she's just running off with her, with her husband finally, and throughout the song enjoying their Love, once again, the family is concerned for the reputation now of their younger sister, right? They want her to be a wall, not a door. If you guys remember the metaphors going on there, they want to protect their younger sister from all the suitors that are knocking at that door. And the family is concerned to not just protect her, but to beautify her, right? If she is a wall, we'll build battlements of silver, right? If she's a door, then we're going to build, we're going to board that door up so nobody is getting in to that door. And then in verse 10, our heron reminisces about her own coming of age and vindicates herself from any charges of loose living and reflects on how she has brought love and peace to her own lover. Now, you might wonder, what are we to do with these seemingly irrelevant texts here? What I think we can learn from this is that in ancient Near Eastern society, as in most traditional societies, the level of protection And scrutiny to preserve a woman's honor bordered on the oppressive, right? Women were kept, you know, in this very small circle, you know, almost smothered by the protection of their parents and peers. Uh, But in our hyper-individualistic culture, there seems to be little concern for the support and protection of the family and broader community. Last week, Josh talked about how his church community was deeply involved in his dating relationship with Camille. I thought that was so beautiful. Here's a community concerned to care and nourish this young relationship. Jamie and I had a similar experience with our church and school community. We lived in on-campus housing at the seminary with this really small, tight-knit, international um, community, and it was amazing. Our Both our dating relationship, our engagement, my proposal was planned with the help of the entire dorm, you know, staged in on it. We got marriage counseling in-house from one of our, one of the admissions directors, which is always a great thing to get marriage counseling from. Uh, But the whole relationship was surrounded by community, and that's a beautiful thing. I'd love to see more of that happen in our church today. I feel like these days, someone meets someone on Bumble or Christian Mingle, and they're just gone. 
you just never see them again. They just, they're just ghosting, right? Hey, I met somebody online, and you know, I'll see you guys later. You know? And that's, the, that's so far from the world that we see here. And where the ancient world right, had its own challenges, maybe they're overprotective of the women in their lives. I feel like in our culture today, we don't care. The community is not part of building and cultivating and nurturing relationships. That's something I think our culture can learn from this text in the ways in which the ancient world protected relationships, nurtured relationships, provided space for people to build relationships together. I think it's also a great challenge for those of us as parents, right, who are raising young kids, right? I've got four boys of my own, and we're talking about what does it mean, right, to prepare them to live in the world that they live in. We're reading right now Ray Ortland's book, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. Trying to give a vision for men, not just to objectify women or to use women, um, but to genuinely respect and honor women, protect women, and then fight against the forces of evil in this world, right? That are producing pornography and sex trafficking and all of the um, evils that we see in our world. How do we give our kids a vision for that. I'm also, as a foster dad, trying to learn how to, how to protect girls, teenage girl and now little girls in our house as of yesterday. And so how do I be a dad? How do I be a dad of girls, right? We've got beautiful opportunities as a church to think and reflect on that. And I think that's something the ancient world put a lot of time and thought into in our culture today, puts very little into. And so I just put that out there as a challenge to you as you're thinking about protection for relationships there. Uh, The second thing we notice here in these final pieces of advice here is in verses 11 and 12. We see this figure Solomon emerge on the scene. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out that vineyard to the keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. Once again, we have another little a snippet here, and we wonder what's going on. Where is this King Solomon on appearing on the scene? Uh, Solomon had, if we are familiar with the history, 700 wives, 300 concubines. He was a man that had a lot of women in his life. And uh, vineyards are a metaphor. They're a double entendre here in the song, right? Vineyards are both places where grapes are raised, but also in the song, their relationships. And so this young woman, when this dirty old man is like, hey, I would like to add you to my harem, it's like, no, thank you. I would like to have a true love relationship with someone who actually loves and follows along with me. And so what we learn here, again, just another piece of wisdom, love needs to be protected, right, from all the corrupting influences out there, right? There's still a temptation in our culture today to marry most everybody wants to marry for love, but you know, if you don't marry for love, at least you can marry for money, right? That's still, it's still a temptation, maybe not as strong as it was back in the ancient Near East. And men, of course, today are still uh, tempted to marry on the basis of physical attraction only and you know, pretty much weed out 90% of other candidates based on very superficial criteria. And so we've got some wisdoms here, wisdom and learnings here from the song about how not to think about love relationships. And then finally, as we come to the very end, we get some very delightful poetry as we look and reflect on the final movement in the song, True Love Never Ends. And so we read in verse 13, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains 
of spices. What a, what a wonderful ending for the song, right? The soundtrack should be uh, Nora Jones. Come away with me here. That's the, uh, that's the mood. That's the vibe here at the end of this uh, song of songs, right? They're ready to run away once again. These lovers, right? Song opened with a desire for the kisses of his mouth. Here at the end, it's a desire to run away, uh, get away together and experience all the beauty and ecstasy of love. And that's the thing about love. You never arrive, right? If you think on your wedding day, you said, hey, I told her I loved her. You know, I'm done. That's all I got to do, right? I told her once, don't need to remind her, right? You're going to totally miss out on what love really is. Love is a pursuit. It requires that we pursue one another. It requires that we chase after. You're either pursuing your spouse or you are drifting apart. There are no two options here, right? You are either in love and pursuing that love and cultivating that love and nurturing that love, or you are drifting, sliding away. And the song is all about the pursuit of romantic love, cultivating it, continue to see it grow. And that's why, men, you need to Date your wives. You need to show intentionality. Take her away. Sweep her off her feet. Take her out uh, where she wants to go. And wives, you've got to make space to come away on those romantic uh, little uh, journeys to get away from all of the mundaneness of life. Get away from the diapers and the house and the chores and the cleaning and work and all of that and enjoy life together. Um, it's as you're building that relationship, you're going to cultivate a friendship that will last, a beautiful friendship that can be set on fire. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' final letter to his daughter Lucy uh, captures this beautifully. I thought I would quote it here uh, because it shows the kind of love that you cultivate over the years. He said, Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union just so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature that I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. I love that, right? This vision of a love that's going to go on forever that we continue to cultivate and nourish and invest in a friendship Uh, that because it's built around something solid and substantial is going to go on forever. So we've come to the end of the song and it's unbridled celebration of romantic love, but only to the beginning of what the Bible has to say about God's amazing love. Uh, Boy, there's so many places we could go, so many texts that we could consider. Uh, We see in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, that God, like the lover in his song, sets his seal upon us. He chooses us. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, has anointed us, and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Consider this church with the same passion and love and ardor of our lover in the Song of Songs. God has set his love upon us. He set his seal of ownership and possession over us. He loves us deeply and tenaciously and passionately. And when Jesus walked out of the tomb that first Easter morning, he demonstrated once and for all a love that is, that love is the strongest force in the universe, stronger than death itself. And that is why Paul can say in Romans 8, 35 
through 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we look at the power of love, the depth of love, we see that it pales in comparison to the love of Christ. His love is not just as strong as death. It has conquered the grave. It has defeated death. And Jesus is going to bring us through death into a relationship with him forever if we are in Christ. That's the beauty, that's the hope of the gospel. And this love that God has for us, it goes on and on forever. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13 says it like this, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now that we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abides, these three, but the greatest of these is love. That's what we're celebrating in the song. That's why the song is the song. It's the greatest song because love is the greatest thing in the universe. It is the most powerful thing in the universe. And all of the romantic love that we enjoy and celebrate, it's a signpost. It's a pointer to the incredible love that God has for each of us. And it's an invitation to be swept up into that love, whether you are married or single, whether you are young or old, whatever position you find yourself in, we're reminded of the ardor of the lover of our souls, the the great lover who sprung the universe into motion, who created this beautiful thing called romance, who loves us and is going to bring us into a relationship with him forever. That's our destiny, church. That's where we're heading. Whatever circumstances are going on in your life, you are loved by the God of the universe And he wants that love to come home in powerful and fresh ways. And we're going to get an opportunity as we gather around the table to see how his love is expressed for us, his body and blood shed for us at the cross sacrifice, so that we, imperfect as we are, uh, failed as we are, flawed as we are as lovers, can enter into his presence and into his fellowship together. But I want to close with one uh, final quote because I think it sums up the song beautifully, uh, powerfully, and brings this whole series, I hope, in for a landing. This is from David Hubbard. He says, God's name is absent from the entire setting, but who could deny that his presence is strongly felt? From whom comes such purity and passion? Whose creative touch can ignite hearts and bodies with such a capacity to bring unsullied delight to another? Who kindled the senses that savor every sight touch, scent, taste, and sound of a loved one whose very character is comprised of a love that is a central subject of the psalm. None of this is to allegorize either the minute details or the main sense of the book. It is about human love at its best. But behind it, above it, through it, 
The song, as part of the divinely ordered repertoire of scripture, is a peon of praise to the Lord of creation who makes possible such exquisite love and the Lord of redemption who demonstrated love's fullness on the cross. Um, Oh, that our marriages, that our relationships would be a signpost to that incredible love. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for the song. We thank you for uh, the opportunity to reflect on romantic love and all of its passion, ardor. Uh, God, we thank you for the opportunities to learn what it looks like to live into these relationships with wisdom, uh, God, and and the wisdom that you have granted and offered to us. Uh, We pray that our church, God, would be characterized by relationships filled with uh, marriages, hearts, and Uh, relationships that are on fire, love on fire, friendship on fire. God, would we see more of that happen in the days when our marriages point more and more to the beauty of the relationship of Christ and his church? Um, God, would they be signposts to that greater reality? And would you get all the glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.